Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K, where together we can reimagine GI care. Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I'm Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this series is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but also outside of GI as well. We always refer to our universe of value-based care as the world of the four Ps, patients, providers, plans, and payers. Although each of the Ps sees themselves as being at the center of the four Ps, few would argue that the patient really belongs at the center. Today, we are returning to the patient as a focus. Our guest today is Donna Cryer, an attorney who is a very strong patient advocate. Donna is the founder, president, and chief executive officer of the Global Liver Institute, which is the premier patient-driven liver health nonprofit organization. Moved by her own experience as a liver transplant recipient, Mrs. Cryer has become a powerful voice in liver health, as well as health policy and patient advocacy. She's raised more than $10 million for liver health initiatives and convened more than 200 organizations involved with liver disease. As a result, she was the recipient of the 2021 Distinguished Advocacy Award by the American Association for the Study of Liver Disease. She's worked with Congress and the White House to advance equitable healthcare in both organ procurement and information technology. Donna is a frequent speaker on patient centricity and patient engagement in healthcare transformation and serves on multiple medical boards. She received her undergraduate degree from Harvard and her Juris Doctorate from the Georgetown University Law Center. Welcome to the show, Donna. Thank you. Do we even have any more time to, <laughs> to talk <laughs> after all that? Uh, my mother does a very good job of, of writing those things. Well, it was... I actually had to confine myself that I could have said more. <laughs> anyway, I want to start our show today by having the listeners hear your personal story. I heard it, and it's quite a compelling one. So let's start the podcast today by asking you to tell your own personal story. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, as I think about how to contextualize more than 30 years since I received my first diagnosis, one of the things I realize is that um, many patients diagnosed with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, with GI diseases, don't recognize that uh, they are at risk for liver transplantation. Um, and, and so it's part of my uh, life's goal to um, both inform patients of that and to hopefully disconnect it so few patients end up in the dire circumstances that I did. Um, I was first diagnosed with uh, what they called ulcerative colitis at the time, which ultimately became Crohn's disease, but with inflammatory bowel disease um, when I was 13 years old. So imagine eighth grade, um, wanting to be the same as everybody else, but I was, I was very sick. Um, my best friend was the school nurse, Nurse Deedle, um, God rest her soul. And uh, I became so ill, so so suddenly, so precipitously, uh, I wasn't able to eat. I was down to 80 some pounds. And, and, and so I was hospitalized uh, and he di diagnosed me with inflammatory bowel disease. That developed into um, 
primary sclerosing cholangitis, so autoimmune liver disease um, that necessitated uh, both the removal of my colon um, because I had had uh, uh, over a decade um, before a lot of the innovations that we now have in, in IBD care. Um, so the cells were turning cancerous, there were high grades of dysplasia. So we knew that if I went onto the transplant list, um, and was transplanted and went on immunosuppressants, I wouldn't survive about a bit of colon cancer. So we removed my colon. Um, after exams one spring, I spent a lovely summer um, at Johns Hopkins and uh, was transplanted in September of 1994. So at the dawn of the era, um, still of, of liver disease and of uh, liver immunosuppressants. And, um, and then, uh, for us, since this is sort of a GI-based audience, I can I can say that the, the next summer um, I went back and um, we we took out my ostomy and and reconnected things, and so um, I've lived successfully with a pouch for 26 years and a liver transplant for 27 years and counting. Um, and you know, it's a blessing to be alive, and it's a blessing to uh, do this work on behalf of other patients. So tell us what caused you to become an advocate. Uh, there are folks who have, you know, health issues, but this transformed your entire life, your career. Uh, what, what caused that to happen? Why, why did you do this? I feel I've always been an advocate. Um, my uh, initial career um, path was going to be a, a child welfare advocate. And so uh, the, the work I did in, in law school was about uh, protecting children in online environments, uh, which ages me to say that it's, it was new at the time, it was novel law, um, and went to work for the Justice Department in the criminal division um, doing, doing that type of work. And that was my, that was my dream job. Um, and uh, the only thing that could uh, change the trajectory of that advocacy was um, something as serious as a transplant. You know, by this point, I'd been a patient for most of my life, but that had never really changed uh, the direction or the trajectory of what I wanted to do. But something about the experience of transplantation really struck me. And, um, you know, the more I learned about it, the more I learned about how many patients um, died waiting, how many patients didn't even make it onto the list, how many patients, um, you know, th there were just issues that I, 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 that I couldn't, I couldn't go to sleep with. Um, and, and I, I couldn't sit down with. And so I started to talk with my surgeons um, who were very involved with UNOS at the time. And uh, we created a job for me uh, reporting into another transplant recipient. So that was very helpful. Um, that was a mix of uh, communications, legal work, um, patient advocacy. I just, uh, couldn't stop thinking about ways to make it better. Um, even though I had benefited from in so many ways, I just wanted it to be better. And so that became the focus of my advocacy. Well, let's talk about this advocacy because uh, <laughs> uh, it's pretty impressive to look at what, what you've accomplished. Um, so for the last eight years, you've been president and CEO of the Global Liver Institute. Tell us about this entity. What does it do? What it, tell me all about it. <laughs> well, 
our, our tagline is it all starts with a patient. And at this point, it's a little bit of a double entendre because certainly it all started with uh, my vision to wanna make sure that other patients um, would, uh, would benefit from the same level of innovation and care that saved my life and sustains me today. And uh, I didn't see the awareness, the, the recognition, the infrastructure in advocacy um, to allow that to happen. And so, you know, um, uh, really taking stock of that on the 20th anniversary of my transplant, um, having at that point in my career spent um, time in a mirror, you know, across all your four P's. So I'd been a patient, um, I, I'd worked with uh, providers, I now sit on the board of a hospital, um, I uh, had worked with health plans and, and payers. Um, and, building public policy institutes and other things. And I wanted to bring all of those perspectives to the benefit for, for liver patients and frankly, for patients with digestive diseases. And so um, the Global Liver Institute has been my innovation lab in a way to be able to do that and to apply all of those best practices across healthcare and across um, advocacy in, in different conditions to the liver space. And now as we, um, you know, have offices in three different countries um, and have a, a community network that is across the United States and Canada, um, councils for liver cancer, uh, fatty liver disease, and uh, pediatric and rare liver diseases. It's exciting to be um, really a hub for um, education and, and, and more than that, agenda setting really and accountability and how to transform the liver space to the, for the benefit of all the stakeholders, frankly, and to have a systematic way for patients certainly to identify problems, but all stakeholders to identify problems and then have a, a, a unified infrastructure to solve those problems. Um, and so it's a little bit of my consulting background, a little bit of my legal, it, it's really sort of the culmination of all the different experiences that I've had. Um, and it's exciting that people um, find it so relevant and, and resonating with them. What would you consider your biggest accomplishment with your organization? I think the biggest accomplishment is just that people say the word liver. Um, when I first started, um, you know, even the American Cancer Society didn't really have a liver um, cancer effort. Um, when I went on the websites of, you know, large academic medical centers, you know, renowned for their cancer care, they didn't have anything about liver cancer. Um, when I talked to the American College of Physicians or, you know, uh, or others, they didn't have anything about liver. And now we have, um, things like the American Heart Association putting out a scientific statement about uh, the impact and the connections between fatty liver disease and heart disease. Um, today, as we, as we record this, um, the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists put out new guidelines ahead of the hepatologists, I might add, on uh, fatty liver disease and, and management. And so um, I, I, we measure success by um, not just what we do, but what we're able to catalyze in the ecosystem on behalf of, of liver patients and the liver community. And the fact that we have really um, 
broaden the definition of who considers themselves part of the liver community and who thinks of, of people uh, at risk for or living with liver diseases to be their patients too, that's our major success. I love what you just said because it touches something in my personal history as well. My father died of cirrhosis of the liver. And you don't know how many times when I tell somebody that, they say, well, did he drink? It's the first conclusion somebody comes to when they hear someone suffering with liver disease. Well, my father right. happened to have acquired non-A, non-B hepatitis from a blood mm -hmm. transfusion. Uh, and he uh, succumbed to that uh, after 13 years. But it's the first, first thought most people get. People right. don't realize 25% of the U.S. population is suffering from fatty liver disease. Right. And 20% of those people actually have inflammation as a result of that. So I love what you said. I, I, I you know what, you took me by surprise. I didn't expect that answer, <laughs> but it, it's actually a, a perfect answer. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Donna Cryer, the founder, president, and chief executive officer of the Global Liver Institute. Donna, my next question. You're recognized as an expert in patient centricity in research and healthcare delivery. What changes need to be made to the healthcare delivery system to change its focus towards one that's patient-centric? Um, you know, it's fascinating. When I started this, um, there was no such term as patient centricity. Um, and I remember with uh, just uh, answering, being, being asked questions like, why would patients even want their data? You know, what would patients even do if they sat on the committee? Um, I remember someone who I sat next to um, when I was serving on an FDA advisory committee telling me like, we don't even need you here. Um, and so to come from that, to, um, excuse me, <coughs> to come from that to um, companies uh, trying to outdo each other to be more patient-centric, um, to try to figure out the how of it, not the if of it, um, is exciting. There's still more to do. I think that the key shift, if there is one, is from thinking of you know the, the phrase patient at the center that always makes me feel like a target um, and, and and moving towards things like patient partnered patient permission um, patients involved in the governance and the decision making of things the design of things and so rather than creating things and then sort of putting out a survey or asking patients at the end, you know, how is this for you? Um, if patients are asking the questions, um, formulating the, the solutions, there is a much greater likelihood that what emerges um, will be truly patient-centered. I sit on a, a government committee, uh, the PTEC, the Physician-Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee. That's why we call it PTEC. Mm -hmm. And we're constantly talking about primary care, specialty care. Seldom do we talk 
total care. Right. And before we can talk about a patient focus, we have to talk about total care. And I applaud the current administration uh, in their focus on social determinants of health, health equity, all these aspects of care that don't fall into the regular silos of primary care and specialty care, but we're never going to have a patient focus unless we consider all these other aspects. Absolutely. The other areas I'd like to, you know, applaud the administration on is a focus on caregivers and, and caregiving. Um, GLI is going to be having a caregiver summit on, on, on May 13th, but the administration um, has been shining a, a spotlight that is, you know, far overdue on um, the role of caregivers, of people who've you know, left their jobs to take care of someone going through a, you know, a serious uh, illness. Um, and how do, how do families survive? Um, you know, parents of children um, with uh, pediatric liver diseases, with, with a host of, of pediatric or rare conditions, um, where often one parent has to um, you know, give, give up work um, and, and, and navigate. And so, um, you know, when someone has a, uh, a serious uh, disease or, or illness, it's not just that person, it's the entire family who's experiencing that. And so um, supports for the patient uh, navigating, but support for the caregiver as well. And, and, and certainly that's palliative care uh, in, in some sense, but it's really just the healthcare system. And that includes, you know, payers and, and, and benefit design, really thinking through, um, how can it be frictionless for someone to put all the pieces together necessary for the optimal outcome? And, and not assuming that someone has a spouse or a parent who can take on the Herculean task of putting all those things together and, and, and serving as unpaid you know, rehabilitation specialists um, to ensure that frankly, that physicians can meet the quality measures that they're measured from. Uh, it, a lot of it is really up to the patient and the, and the heroic care, uh, caregiver ensuring that uh, someone actually, you know, can follow the re regimen, uh, prepare for surgery or a procedure and, 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 and rehabilitate from it um, to, to make those outcomes happen and high quality. Well, I'm, I'm going to use your term frictionless and I'll quote you. Um, because I love that term. We, we, you know, I always look at, I use the word provider abrasion and patient abrasion, but mm -hmm. that, that's a negative tone. Mm -hmm. Frictionless gives it more of a positive mm -hmm. spin. I, I like that a lot. Let's, let's move on to patient engagement. Mm -hmm. At Sonar, and you heard my presentation on Sonar, mm -hmm. you know that we're focused on in proactively engaging mm -hmm. patients. Um, what do you see as, um, as the best way to implement patient engagement? I think that um, it's certainly not going to be one size fits all. Um, you know, people are, and this is going to sound very simplistic, people are engaged in the things that matter to them. And I, I, I think physicians and, and healthcare, uh, you know, systems assume, well, you're very sick. So this has to be your top priority. And of course, you're going to do all these things. That's not necessarily true. Patients are people. They have, a, they live in an entire context of their, of their lives, of their other relationships, of their obligations. And so uh, 
patient may not be their first identity or frankly, their first priority. And so what's the why for a person to want to do uh, the things that will make them well? Um, what is the why to take the medication for, for anything other than, you know, something to relieve an itch? Um, everybody takes their paritis medications. <laughs> um, because the why is very clear, you want to stop itching. Um, so what is what is the why for that for that person? Is it to live longer, to have energy, or to be able to sleep at night, to lose weight, to what is the why for that person? And then construct the supports around it. I want to know why um, the healthcare system thinks that people can do all these things without a coach, um, without some type of navigation support, without feedback on the progress that they're making um, because it doesn't work anywhere else. So I, I don't know why we should think it works in for people in healthcare. So engagement is much more than education. It, it's really, um, how to activate someone and support them in the steps that they are now convinced they need to take. Wow, you got me on a second one there. I love the why. That's that's. I'm going to use that as well. I learned uh, a long time ago in in my sonar work that I used to refer to patients as, "Oh, that's a Crohn's patient. That's an mm -hmm. ulcerative colitis patient. No, that's a human being who just happens to have Crohn's." or a yeah. human being who happens to have ulcerative colitis. And they're just trying to wedge everything that has to do with that illness into the rest of the aspects of their lives. And we providers, I don't think we focus on that enough. And you know, doctors get upset with patients when they don't follow directions completely. Well, you know what? Maybe we have to figure out why they weren't they weren't focused, why they weren't uh, following the directions. I like that. I like that. Why? That, that's good. Frictionless you know, and why. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I think uh, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but uh, it's a physician who talks about, you know, minimally burdensome care. And I think that's also important. Um, there, there may be a host of things that someone can do or that they're, you know, a, a very attentive provider team would love them to be able to do. But in the context of someone's life, there might be only the top three things that they could do. Um, I often equate it with um, all my teachers have assigned homework and they think they're the only ones who've assigned homework. <laughs> um, but somehow I, I have, you know, I have to, I have to get it all, all done and they're, you know, scoffing like well why isn't the essay done I'm like well because I had a math test too so that that's what it's like to be a patient um, particularly someone with you know it, it you know it advanced IBD or certainly liver disease um, trying to put all the pieces together trying to satisfy all the ologists and there's sometimes I have to tell them straight out I'm like you're at the end of the line um, I can't get to you this quarter so let's just adjust your expectations for what's going to happen um, particularly if I'm, you know, in a Crohn's flare or, you know, or some other situation has taken um, precedence, I let them know, you know, which, which specialty is, is up, um, you know, which, which are the priorities right now, and then what things that I will get to when I have time. So um, 
you know, I'm grateful for the for the opportunities when I can do sort of a mad flurry, uh, you know, through through imaging and 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 catch up on things like you know dental work and mammography and DEXA scans and 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 things that might have uh, you know fallen fallen behind some of the more um, urgent uh, you know gastroenterology or or you know or, or endocrine needs and things like that. So I, I think that you know adjusting the expectations of the physicians in terms of what patient workload we can take on is an important conversation to have up front and then helping patients perhaps streamline that and, and, and make those priorities, set those priorities correctly. If sometimes they have misjudged how urgent something does is or does need to happen. I think that's a conversation that doesn't happen frequently enough with complex patients. Okay, well, I have one more question for you. Mm -hmm. okay. This is a value-based mm -hmm. podcast. Give me your view of value from the patient's mm -hmm. perspective. Value is um, no more and no less than what I need to have the optimal outcome for me. So it's essentially personalized, but you can do it at scale um, as you're proving, frankly. Um, I often remark that there are so many things that my health plan will pay for um, that, that really don't advance my wellness. And there are things that are really crucial for my health that I have, you know, I have the privilege and luxury to pay for out of pocket, but those are the things that keep me out of the hospital. Those are the things that um, provide true value for me. And that might be as simple as um, IV saline at home um, that uh, is almost impossible to get. And, and yet, you know, that's what can sustain me, keep me out of trouble, uh, let me, you know, let, give me time for medication to, you know, to kick in, start working. Um, and so really focus on, um, from a patient level, things that, um, provide, you know, help support that optimal outcome for that person. And it will be different by person, but we can create systems to be able to do that type of true personalized medicine at scale. Well, that's, that's a perfect place to end the podcast. Thank you very much for being on today, Donna. I, I certainly have takeaways from this that I'm going to use elsewhere. Donna, how do people contribute to your organization? We are globalliverinstitute.org. Um, we can also be found on Instagram and Twitter. Um, I'm also DC patient on Twitter and we'll absolutely direct you to the organization as well. So okay. that'd be great. Thank you. That's great. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine GI care until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well. Thanks for listening. I'm Dr. K. Tune in with me next time to reimagine the scope of GI care. If we build it, they will join.